you had famously this book Moneyball, which was about how the Oakland A's initially and now other teams in baseball are using analytics to kind of transform their teams with the basic thesis being our intuition or scouts or traditional ways of looking at the world fail us frequently. But data can really ground us in facts that might kind of, you know, look wrong, but actually are right. And I think uh, you're seeing seeing that in more and more areas of the business world, uh, people looking to make looking to and having success making decisions based on data instead of their intuition, which frequently lets them down. That's Seth Stevens Davidowitz, data scientist and author of the New York Times bestseller, Everybody Lies. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. We live in a world of overwhelming options, and whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or just someone who wants to make the most out of your time and money, committing to just one thing can feel impossible. That's called FOMO, and it's short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers how they make personal and professional decisions in a world of overwhelming choice. Big data. That's a term that gets thrown around a lot, but what does it mean? How big is big? Consider this. The World Economic Forum calculates that in 2020, humans will create some 44 zettabytes of digital information. So what does that mean? It means that if all of that information were stored on one gigabyte thumb drives and then you laid the thumb drives end to end, the line would stretch over 10 million miles. That's more than 40 times the distance to the moon. That is insane. And that's the reason why data scientists are now in high demand. I remember the first time I met a real-life data scientist. It was kind of like he was out of central casting. He was in his 60s, he had a British accent, and a head of unruly white hair, kind of like Doc in Back to the Future. As he talked excitedly about mathematical models, statistics, data mining, neural networks, and algorithms, I listened attentively, nodding along and squinting my eyes just a little bit. That's the face I go for when I'm trying to act like I'm totally getting what somebody's saying, even though I have no idea what's going on. It all seems so intimidating. But it doesn't have to be. After spending some time reading up on data science, here's what I think. The math might be complicated, but you don't need to be a statistician to make better decisions using data, even big data. If you know how data scientists think and operate, you can prepare yourself to ask the right questions, challenge their analytics, and make sure that you're getting the answers that you need. Bottom line, data is important, but it's pretty useless without your practical thinking. To help us navigate this environment, I turn to Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Try to say that three times fast. Seth is not out of central casting. Sure, he's got the PhD in economics from Harvard and was a data scientist at Google, but his work is completely accessible. Basically, he uses data from the internet, particularly Google searches, to get new insights into the human psyche on all kinds of aspects of life, including racism, depression, sex, humor, and happiness. He included many of these insights in his New York Times bestseller, Everybody Lies, which explores how we really act when no one is watching, or at least we think no one is watching. I think you're going to find out after today that Seth is watching all of us. And then stick around for the FOMO moment of the show and invite your dog to come along because I'll be speaking to Johnny Grant from FOMO Bones, the CBD-infused dog bone business. Yes, you heard that right. If your dog suffers from FOMO, and let's face it, many dogs do, you're going to love this. And I have some good news for both Fido and for you. I'm teaming up with FOMO Bones to give away some bones and some copies of my new book, Fear of Missing Out, Practical Decision Making in a World of Overwhelming Choice. I'll give you the details later on in the show. And by the way, since today's show is all about data and experimentation, I want to run a little experiment right now. Do me a favor. If you like the show, open up your phone and give FOMO Sapiens a review on your podcasting platform of choice. I'm basically on a mission to get more reviews for the show so that we can reach even more people, and I'm hoping that this little experiment pays off. I'd really appreciate your help. And now, onto the interview. To set the stage for our discussion, I started by asking Seth about a decision he made that changed the course of his entire life. 
How did he end up studying esoteric Google search trends when he was supposed to be getting a PhD in traditional economics? I wasn't that passionate about traditional economics. Like I didn't, I didn't read, I wasn't a kid who like read the Wall Street Journal growing up or uh, in general was kind of like obsessed with interest rates or inflation. Uh, I found a lot of the topics kind of boring. I got kind of got into economics because I'd read the book Freakonomics and I really loved it. And Freakonomics, if you don't know, is about all these kind of crazy studies that Stephen Levitt did about why sumo, how sumo wrestlers cheat and how teachers cheat and uh, how abortion dropped led to a drop in the crime rate, kind of these funky studies of human society. And I thought that's what economics was. And then I kind of got to grad school. I'm like, oh, wait, it was called, it was like such a splash because that's not what economics is. And what economics tends to be is more, uh, you know, kind of drier studies of uh, inflation, interest rates, uh, markets. And so I was kind of a little bit lost. And then during my program, I discovered that Google uh, was making available to researchers uh, something called Google Trends, which is basically what people are searching for in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, what, different time periods. And I just became obsessed with the data because like, it used the skills I developed, which was uh, statistical analysis, data analysis. That's a lot of what economics is now, econometrics. But I could apply it to areas that to me were more exciting, uh, you know, about kind of the quirks of human nature or, or questions of racism or questions of uh, you know, people getting do-it-yourself abortions, just things that to me, like I was found more interesting and, but, but use kind of the similar skill set. So I, I kind of that, then expanded it to different areas, studying different uh, sources of data, all from the internet that I, the kind of my theory is that there's all this revolutionary information about people, uh, thanks to the internet with people kind of leaving uh, trails as they go through, through life. And when you decided to do this, were your professors at Harvard were they skeptical? I mean, they're thinking, well, you know, we brought you here to study the Mexican peso in 1987 and what it did. And now you're off studying trends about racism and people's uh, sexual activities. Were they enthusiastic or were they skeptical? I think they actually weren't. They were enthusiastic, but they kind of warned me. They're like, you might not get an academic job. Uh, they're like, we really like your research. Like, you're really interested in it. And I think they kind of sensed you know, by that time, by the time I started, my advisors I'd been talking to for two or three years, they kind of knew I was a little bit eccentric and probably wasn't going to be like a standard economist. Uh, so they're like, this kind of fits you perfectly. You seem to have a talent in it. We can't argue it's not interesting or not important, but like we're warning you the economics uh, field is fairly conservative and you might have trouble uh, convincing other people like you've convinced us. And yet your time, your timing was so good because, you know, there's a cliche out there that data is the new oil. And I was looking at some numbers. IDC estimates that the revenues for big data and business analytics solutions companies were about $200 billion in 2019. And that's going to grow at double digits going forward. So actually, you pivot into what is a pretty hot line of work and where there's a lot of action the question is, I think, for a lot of people, and I know in your book, Everybody Lies, which I read over the weekend, you don't give a definition for big data, actually. You, you stay away from that. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you do that here today. For people who are listening, and we all heard the term big data, yeah. right? And we know that it's, as I just said, you know, billions and billions and hundreds of billions of dollars being invested. What, what is this industry about? The reason I don't define big data, I think some people are a little too obsessed with the size of data sets. So they're kind of like, I have, you know, seven terabytes of data, or I have 500 million observations, they get really, you know, they get really excited, almost brag about how much data they have. And I find that a lot of companies end up just drowning in all this data, they don't really know what to do with it. Uh, but I think 
the way I think of the big data revolution, or now it's more alternative data, kind of new sources of data, different data, is just that so much more is measured that used to not be measured, uh, that just about any question you ask, you can throw data at it and sometimes find kind of counterintuitive findings. And it kind of works. I, I kind of find that, you know, any industry uh, you're in, uh, you kind of have success through this methodology. Yeah. I've kind of, since I, since I wrote the book, I've been doing a lot of consulting because a lot of companies kind of reach out to me and they're like, uh, you know, we, we have we have these problems. And, and kind of one thing I'm learning is that uh, I think what you're going to see in the in the in the business world, or you're start, you're definitely starting to see it, is uh, you had famously this book Moneyball, which was about uh, which was about how ba- the Oakland A's initially and now other teams in baseball are using analytics to kind of transform their teams. With the basic thesis being our intuition or scouts or traditional ways of looking at the world fail us frequently, but data can really ground us in facts that might kind of you know look wrong but actually are right, and I think. Uh, you're seeing seeing that in more and more areas uh, of, of 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 the business world, uh, people looking to make looking to and having success making decisions based on data instead of their intuition, which frequently lets them down. But for the uninitiated, it sounds intimidating, right? You're like big data. That means, as you mentioned, it could be a huge data set. And it, I always think of big data as this term that data scientists came up with, so they scare the rest of us away and can charge us more. It's like, well, this is so complicated that you'll never be able to figure it out. So, but you know, pay me to do it. But you and your writing have said that it's not as complicated as it looks. So, what do you mean by that? I was getting advice from my grandma in my dating life, and I'm like, and she's like, what makes a good relationship? Well, how does she she figure out? Uh, you know, and develop all their theories on what makes a good relationship. She basically just watches the relationship she's seen in the past and says, okay, the, this is, these are the traits that are correlated with the marriage leading to happiness, you know, with the, the couple ending up happy. And that's what a data scientist would do. A data scientist trying to figure out what makes a good relationship would have like happiness as their Y variable, and they'd have a whole bunch of X variables, and they'd try to uh, make a model uh, predicting, showing which ones predict a good relationship. So it's really very natural. It's just kind of data science makes it more systematic. And what you frequently see in data science is that our intuition is tricking us. Now, you have convinced companies to give you their data on an anonymized way. So you get, you know, you, you use Google data, you've gotten data from a Pornhub, the, the porn company, and, and, and a bunch of other companies. And then you've run a bunch of experiments to look at problems or assumptions that we have out there or things that people think are true. And you've been able to actually realize that behind what sort of looks obvious on the surface, something very different is happening. And that's what your book is about, Everybody Lies, which came out a couple years ago. So tell us about some of the things that you found that were really surprising to you and that you wrote about, uh, either in, in, in the book or in some of your work in the New York Times. Certain business success stories that are very sexy get talked about in the media all the time and give people a distorted image of business success. So there's this idea that, for example, entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs tend to be in their 20s. People tend to associate people in their 20s with big entrepreneurial success. So people like Mark Zuckerberg or Sergey Brin or Larry Page, uh, who kind of dropped out of college or grad school, started this business, became huge successes. And we love those stories. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg's story was so good that they made a Hollywood movie out of it. Uh, you know, who, who wouldn't be fascinated by uh, the, ki- the kid genius Uh, starting a global empire uh, in his dorm room. But when you look at the actual data, the most successful entrepreneur, the average age of a successful entrepreneur is 45. Uh, But 
those stories are a little less interesting to us. So we get a distorted view of entrepreneurial success uh, and tend to think it's much younger than it is. Also, the businesses people go into, I think, uh, you know, if you look at the businesses on magazine covers, restaurants or dating apps, uh, we think of those as and, and everybody wants to start them thinking that's how to be a successful you know, business person. You can be the next you know, global chef or the next uh, creator of a great social network, great internet company, great dating uh, site. But if you look at uh, what businesses have a lot of success, where millionaires or 10, 10 millionaires or, or 100 millionaires make their money uh, by, by, you know, it's, it's frequently things like an auto dealership that, like a, you know, a, that they kind of spread around their local geography or, you know, supplies, supplies industry, warehouses, something that's much less sexy, much more boring. Uh, that's kind of where wealth is in the United States, much more than these kind of famous examples that get a lot of media attention. So I always think in business, uh, if you're thinking of kind of where to go in your career, the more you see it on the media, the more you see rich people in the media in that industry, the less good a decision it is to enter that industry uh, because people are just going to flood into it uh, and have a totally distorted view of the success ratio. Uh, you really want to enter an industry that nobody's talking about because it's too freaking boring, but actually is a great uh, a great business. There's a sort of a famous maxim that if you look at what Harvard Business School graduates, what industry they're going into in a particular year, if there's an industry that's, that's really popular, that means the industry is about to blow up. And I think it's been shown that there was a point where it was all, all banks and then the banking industry took a huge dump all with hedge funds and probably more recently with tech and venture capital. So there is this herd effect that happens. And then, and then uh, interestingly, you start to see that, that that creates bubbles that then burst. Social pressures play so big a role in our decision making. So, you know, if if it becomes sexy to say you're in banking, uh, then people want to, you know, go to a party and say, oh, I'm in banking, I'm in banking. And kind of the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world or the Jeff Bezos of the world, or the Bill Gates of the world just don't have those genes that say, I need to tell someone I'm in banking because everyone else says they're in banking. If anything, they have the opposite. Like they want to be doing what's different. And then that ends up being uh, creating a lot of success. A lot of the ways we ruin our lives is by trying to impress other people with the sexy thing, and everybody's trying to do it, so it just becomes kind of uh, too competitive. Tudo bem, meus queridos homo sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese, and as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Be an iconoclast, right? Yeah. Be an iconoclast. So you work with businesses. You help businesses to take data and make smarter decisions. What separates the companies that know how to use data from the ones that have no clue? A big important thing is being willing to make different decisions and counterintuitive decisions based on the data uh, that a lot of people want to be told what they already believe. 
So they kind of hire data scientists to tell them. Confirmation bias. Yeah, confirmation bias. They say, I really think this is the big trend, or I think this explains something. And then the data scientists kind of know that. So they torture the data until it gives the person what they want to hear. And and then the whole uh, process is pointless. They're not, you're not getting anything out of it. You're just, you're just making the decisions you would have made anyway. I think the really great people say, uh, this is what I think. And you know, tell me if I'm right or wrong. And either way, they're willing to make the decision based on the data. So they can just say, oh, wow, you know, I was totally wrong. I'm going to have to switch that decision. Now, imagine that I hire a data scientist to come in and do the kind of work that you do. Like, what kind of questions should I ask you to make sure that, I don't know, to validate your work or to understand whether or not you're giving me a good analysis? That's the thing that I've learned is that pretty much any time I do a data science analysis, People who have nothing, know nothing about data science have smart questions to ask. And I think some people don't go through with asking the question because they're intimidated by the data scientist. And I think the smart thing to do is just anytime you have a question, ask the data scientist. And a lot of times they won't have an answer. And then you're like, oh, that's not a good data scientist because there's something obvious that I thought about that they didn't think about or maybe they thought about but had no way to deal with it. So just ignored it. The good data scientist, you ask that question, they'll kind of explain how they thought about it and why they think it doesn't change their fundamental result. Is there a place where the data analysis stops and the gut still takes over? Uh, I think it's kind of combining the two that ultimately wins out. And, and so, yes, I think a lot of things you just can't measure. So when you can't measure something, that's when you really have to use your gut. So you kind of have the gut for the unmeasurables, and then you have the data for the measurables, and then you put them together. Then you make, uh, hopefully, the best decision. Okay, do you have a, a, an example of maybe something you've seen either in your own work or in your consulting work that, that, that you, you've done that? Yeah, so the example I, in the book, Everybody Lies, I was talking about this guy, Jeff Sater, who predicts horse racing success. And he's like a quirky eccentric. He actually went to Harvard Business School okay. and Harvard Law School and Harvard undergrad. Whoa, he's, Triple H. Yeah, he's one of those guys. <laughs> and then he started trying to predict horses using data analysis. And he does all these like really clever things. Uh, and very entrepreneurial, he built... Uh, the first EKG to measure the internal organs of horses. And he found that the left ventricle is a major predictor of horse racing success. Wow. That horses with big left ventricles try to uh, run real faster. American Pharaoh, the first horse to win the Triple Crown in 37 years, uh, had a 99.6 first percentile left ventricle, uh, along with other good traits uh, that Sater had found uh, predict success. I, I, I flew down to Florida to meet with him when I was researching my book. And he has a, a partner in his operation, which is a woman, Patty Murray, who has no experience in data. And she just kind of looks at horses, but she's she's been around horses her whole life. Uh, she actually told me she likes horses more than humans. And she like <laughs> moved to like Pennsylvania to get away from humans, I think. Okay. Uh, but, and just like, you know, has been a horse racing junkie and horse junkie uh, her entire life. And she kind of walks around and looks at the horses and uh, she grills, she's a little bit of an investigative journalist. She like grills the person who's selling the horse uh, about, you know, like, tough questions like you know why it seems like he has a limp and kind of sees if they have good answers to that Uh, and then at the end of the day jeff sater has all his like complicated computer models explaining how good the horse is and patty murray has uh her like investigative journalism i would say uh approach to to the horse and they put it together and when they both agree then that's a buy that's you know a horse you really want to buy that's fascinating and 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 so he he has sort of the presence in, of mind to say, listen, I'm doing this analytics work, but I also value the qualitative, I would say, gut feel that she can bring to the table, and she, she feels the same, vice versa. It's very rare that you can measure everything. In horses, there's no way. What gut feel is really do, doing is your own kind of data analysis. Again, it's that intuitive data analysis. It's based on your own experience. So I've seen horses that look like that before. They didn't run 
they didn't run faster. Like that, that little subtle limp that, you know, the computer models might miss is really important because I've seen horses fall apart over that. Or, uh, you know, the Patty Murray even said one time, like that, that horse just looks dorky. <laughs> which I, I you know i didn't so mean yeah I, I felt first of all as, as a dork i i really want to defend the horse and say that that doesn't mean he can't he, he or she you know can't perform well but uh you know but i i, I yeah the, the humorous thing is i didn't even know what 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 does a dorky horse even mean of one you've seen i guess over her lifetime she's probably examined tens of thousands of horses and seen how they run and she's able to say that that's a dorky horse uh, which is, you know, not a great thing. And again, it, it by itself, it's not enough because there's so much that she misses. She doesn't see the that that dorky horse might have an enormous left ventricle or might have a big spleen, which also predicts horsing success. So there's a lot of things that she's obviously missing, and I'd be the first to say that. And, and you know, you, if if you don't have a Jeff Sater on your team, you're going to get killed by someone with a Jeff Sater on their team uh, who's really doing the data analysis. But I think Patty Murray also told me she's like uh, Sater's like he, he's a genius, but he's a little crazy. Which I think would describe most of the great data scientists. They're a genius, but a little crazy, and they take things a little too far. Uh, so, kind of that's where you need the kind of traditional, uh, old-fashioned, uh, you know, qualitative analysis. So, Seth, you uh, have been working on a on a new book yeah. that I know you're 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 getting started on, and it's a book about how to use data to make better decisions in your life. So I want to, uh, this, is, this is something you're working on. So we're getting kind of a first look at, at what you're, you've, been, you've, been, you've been cooking up. So to tell us, let's jump into that. What about happiness? What can we learn about human happiness? There's this kind of revolution or understanding of happiness thanks to iPhones, which is there are now these research teams that have recruited tens of thousands of people to, and they ping them at different points in the day. And they say, what are you doing and how happy you are, are you? And it's just like revolution, I guess, in our understanding of happiness. They can do all these crazy experiments. Like they know, like they don't even have to ask people just from the iPhone. They know exactly where a person is. So they've compared where a person is, like G- their GPS. They know like what kind of land it is. And they found that when people are doing the same activity with the same people, if they're in a natural environment, particularly near water, they're significantly happier. So if you're taking a walk in like a city or you're taking a walk by a lake, you're going to be on average way happier if you're by a lake than you're in a city. And like, just like they follow people after they follow, they watch sporting teams that they like. Like they found that if you are watching a sports game uh, and a team you're really passionate about, you get like three points of happiness if your team wins. And if you, you lose seven points of happiness, your team loses. <laughs> uh, so sports is kind of like a lose, a losing bet. And they found that just by like track, cause they're pinging people like literally, you know, time, exact, no exact time of day. Uh, know you know what what they're doing know know how happy they are so it's it's pretty like uh, j- just that like area of research I think is probably uh, more we've more than we've known about happiness uh, than than we've ever known. It is fascinating how our mobile phones have become these vectors of data and in fact there are a lot of studies that have been done about FOMO by clinical psychologists that are based on pinging people throughout the day and asking them how they're feeling and then looking how that relates to what they're doing, how they're using their computers and their social media. So it's going to be a great way of gathering data for that kind of research and the kind of research you're talking about. And we'll definitely be paying attention to see what you find when your book comes out. But until then, we'll be following your writings at SethSD.com. Thanks a lot, Seth, and good luck. Thanks, Patrick. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show, and I'm joined by Johnny Grant of FOMO Bones. Johnny is one of the partners behind a company called Sunday Scaries, which sells a range of CBD products, but I invited him on the show because the firm has also launched a pet brand called FOMO Bones. I've been following FOMO Bones on Instagram for a few months now after I found them just by searching FOMO and dogs on the internet, and I loved their approach to marketing so much and the fun that they have with a product that I wanted to have them on the show. We also decided that it would be fun to team up and give FOMO Sapiens listeners a chance to win some copies of my new book and some free FOMO Bones. I'll tell you how to enter at the end of the segment. To start our conversation, I asked Johnny to tell me about just who's eating all of these FOMO Bones. Luckily, it's still only the dogs, but um, they might be eating it for a different reason. Uh, now they have, uh, they've been having their humans around more than ever. So that can be a stressful time uh, for them even more than than we could think of. Yeah, it's a good point. During the pandemic, obviously, us humans are feeling stressed, but animals, you know, they are very sensitive beings as well, and they are also experiencing this, and I imagine that they're feeling some anxiety. So I want to talk a little bit about your marketing. Why did you decide to use FOMO in the branding for FOMO Bones? We like to take a kind of a humorous approach to connecting with our potential customers or whoever they might be. And we thought that it was a great way to display the feelings that pets might have when their owners aren't home, kind of just displaying that dogs could have FOMO too. And how did this original idea come up? I mean, what made you kind of connect FOMO with dogs? Well, it came up, one of our founders of uh, Bo, he had a uh, dog, Ziggy, and our, our two founders, Bo and Mike, they were opening a restaurant at the time, and he was working 12, 14-hour days, and Ziggy's health was declining, and he could tell um, that uh, a part of that was the fact that he missed that personal you know, attention, personal touch. Now, I've long been a fan of your Instagram. It's really funny, and everybody should just go check it out because it... I don't know, puts a smile on my face. And I'm not one of those dog Instagram people, just so you know. But I've also noticed it's kind of changing. You have a different tone uh, at the moment. We're in pandemic and, you know, there's a lot going on in the world. So how have you been changing your message to reflect the current moment? Right at the start of the pandemic, it it seemed uh, like some of the millennials weren't taking it as seriously. So we wanted to build in messaging of social responsibility and safe social distancing and all of that into our humor. If you check out a lot of our messaging during that time, you'll notice that 
we either subtly or not so subtly incorporate having our audience embrace that idea of, of social responsibility. Yeah. Ironically, it's a FOMO bones company is trying to get people to control their FOMO about going outside as well. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Amazing. All right. um, So make sure to stay inside and uh, don't eat the bones, but uh, check out the Instagram. Thanks a lot, Johnny Grant. All right. Thanks, Patrick. As I mentioned earlier, FOMO bones and I are teaming up to give you the perfect combo to make sure you and your pet are living your best lives. This month, we'll be giving away some FOMO Bones and some signed copies of my new book. Just head over to Instagram and find at FOMO Bones or head over to my account at Patrick J. McGinnis or both where you can find all the details about how to enter to win. And I do want to add a quick disclaimer here. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. So do keep that in mind both for your dog and for you. FOMO. And that's the end of another episode. If you have an idea, a story, or a question, you can find me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, and at www.patrickmcginnis.com, where you can also take the official FOMO Sapiens diagnostic and find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it at Spotify and at iTunes. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com.